Today's reading is from the first of Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18, up to the second of Corinthians, uh, verse 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the word did not know God, though through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful, no many were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing amongst you, except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power and of, of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of God. Father, the kingdom is yours. And the power is yours. And the glory is yours. Father, please, this morning, will you help us to see things as they truly are? Through the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if you've ever come through those doors over there. Uh, Those ones over there on the side. Uh, If you have, you will have noticed there's a tea station outside, and then above the tea station there's a pin board uh, just above the teacups, and it's the usual random collection of notices, Spanish guitar lessons, dog training, flatmate wanted, and so on. Just above the pin board is a plaque dated December 1st of December, 2001. What does it say? Anyone know? You can be bold and shout it out if you do. I'll give you a clue. It's in verse 23. Have a look at verse 23. 
We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Doesn't sound like much. You read that, you might think the guitar lessons are more interesting. But that is a radical statement at the entrance of any building. Imagine you're walking into a school and on the mantle you see, we train revolutionaries. As a parent, you might be tempted to turn on your heel at that point and walk in the other direction. Or you walk into a laboratory and on the mantle it reads, we split the atom. Again, you might think twice. I want to put it to you that the message on that plaque outside that door is just as dangerous. It's revolutionary. It's explosive. If it's true, if that's actually what we do, if we preach Christ crucified, we are busy splitting the atom. We are overthrowing the existing regime. We're changing the world. Only it's not going to look like it. It's not going to look like it. I want to show you all of this from our passage, but uh, as always, we just need to remind ourselves where we are, get our bearings. You've heard uh, the past couple of weeks, it's 80.55. Paul is in Ephesus. Uh, he receives a letter from a church that he planted five years before. The church is in Corinth. At around the same time, he receives a delegation from the same church. Neither the letter nor the delegation are bringing good news. Remember, Corinth was a moral, spiritual, social chaos, a lot like uh, Crete, if you remember our series in Titus, a lot like that. And the news from Corinth is that the church has become a mirror of the culture. Last week, we heard about divisions in the church, factions around various leaders. Those factions were rooted in false theology. The false theology itself was rooted in the Greek culture. And what it came down to was this. The gospel is a brand of human wisdom taught by human teachers. Those teachers are to be followed on the basis of their ability to persuade us. Because that's how things worked in Corinth. At that time, there was a very influential brand of philosophy doing the rounds. It was known as Sophism, from the Greek word Sophia, for wisdom. Sophists are still with us, still very much with us. They are radical skeptics who don't care about the truth. Not about the truth. They're only interested in what works. Okay, so they are pragmatists. It's not about what's true, it's about what works. Now, I don't have to tell you there's no shortage of sophists in our political arena. I'm sure you can think of a few. These sophists would travel around trying to persuade people not with the truth, but with sophisticated arguments, with eloquent speech. Everyone had their favorite sophist. The guru that they followed, the most impressive speaker, they would associate with speakers like we associate with footballers. So when I pull on the messy shirt, I'm not really trying to say something about him. I'm trying to say something about me. In my case, I'm not exactly sure what that something would be. We're about the same height. That's where it ends. But we all do this. It's what the Corinthians were doing with their church leaders. Brand management, I think they call it. I follow Apollos, right? I pull on his shirt. Why? Well, because he's a lot like me in my thinking. So one commentator says it plainly. They boast about these great names, but only to boast about themselves. So this is the Corinthian understanding. The gospel is just another kind of human wisdom. Gospel preachers are basically philosophers. They must be judged and followed on the basis of their eloquence or their powers of persuasion. Can they persuade us? In verses 18 to 25, that's where we're going to focus this morning. 
Paul shows us just how wrong they are by comparing their gospel with his gospel. He contrasts two very different kinds of logic, two very different objects of worship, two very different outcomes and two very different assessments. Two kinds of logic, two objects of worship, two outcomes, two assessments. We start with the two kinds of logic and This is in verse 17, so it's one verse back from our reading this morning. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is contrasting, I don't know if you heard it there, Paul is contrasting words of wisdom, verse 17, with the word of the cross, verse 18. Words of wisdom versus word of the cross. English word is a translation of Greek logos. It's where we get our word logic. And I think that's basically the meaning here. So Paul is contrasting the logic of worldly wisdom with the logic of the gospel, the logic of the cross. Worldly wisdom says man is the measure of all things, including God. The gospel says God created me and has to save me from my folly. Worldly wisdom exalts human ingenuity. The gospel condemns human pride. And we see this pattern playing out all the way through the Corinthian letter. Paul applying the the logic of the cross to the logic of worldly wisdom that's playing out in the Corinthian church. So in Corinth, worldly wisdom says it's fine to sleep with your stepmother. Because we're all spiritual people and it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Worldly wisdom says it's fine to take each other to court because if I'm right, I'm right. And winning is what matters. Worldly wisdom says it's fine to eat food sacrificed to idols because I know that idols are nothing. And I want to eat what I want to eat. But to those in Corinth, thinking that way, Paul responds with the logic of the cross. The cross says sex is for marriage because Jesus is Lord of the whole person, mind, spirit, and body. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's what he writes to them. The gospel says you don't take each other to court because it is better to lose, to lose your money, to lose your reputation than to defame the king. The gospel says I will give up my rights for the sake of my brother. If food sacrificed to idols makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. That's what he writes. And that's the pattern the whole way through the letter. Time and time again, the logic of the cross contradicts and trumps the logic of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, I have the power. The gospel says, I'm powerless. But God Almighty chooses to work his power through me. Worldly wisdom says we can and should judge God. The gospel says I don't have the right or the ability. The world advances through strength. The gospel saves through service. The world says I'm worthy. The gospel says I'm loved in spite of myself. The world says that the way forward is up. The gospel says the way forward is down. The world says make much of yourself. The gospel says make much of others. The world says take. The gospel says receive. The world says work. The gospel says rest. The world says do. The gospel says done. I think you get the picture. 
Do you see how different they are? It's night and day. The gospel puts the logic of worldly wisdom in reverse. It's a complete reversal. The logic of the gospel is summed up in this little paradox from verse 23. Christ crucified. Just meditate on that for a second. King crucified. The king dies the death of a slave. And then the slave rises to the throne of the king. It's upside down. It's back to front. It's a revolutionary message and it exposes what's going on in the depths of our hearts. It exposes who or what it is that we are actually worshipping. Paul shows the Corinthians that the two logic, these two logics reveal two very different objects of worship. If you are trusting in the preaching of the cross, it shows that you are worshipping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you reject the cross in favor of worldly wisdom, and that can be very subtle, you are worshipping a God of your own making. When it comes to making a God for ourselves to worship, Paul identifies two basic options, two idols to pick from. We find them in verse 22. Instead of the folly of the cross, verse 22 Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Paul argues that both Jews and Greeks prefer to worship a God of their own making rather than worship the crucified king. The Jews demanded a show of power in their favor from their God and the Greeks wanted to think their way to God. Or rather, they wanted a God who complied with their way of thinking. And these are the two basic religious impulses in all of humanity. The God at my disposal or the God of my wisdom. The genie or the hero of my dreams. Those are the basic options when it comes to idolatry. But the bigger choice is, of course, between the God of the cross and the God of worldly wisdom. That's the choice that confronts us all. And that choice has one of two outcomes. Only two outcomes. Those who reject the logic of the cross and live by worldly wisdom will die. It's the plain language of chapter 2, verse 6. They are doomed. They are perishing even as I write, says Paul in chapter 1, verse 18. And in the same verse, those who reject worldly wisdom and live by the logic of the cross are being saved. Two separate destinies. It's binary. It's a zero or a one. There's no middle ground. This is what the preaching of the cross does. It splits the atom of human existence into two opposing realities. No lukewarm. Finally, let's have a look at how this claim is assessed, how it's evaluated. And it's not going to be surprising to you, there are two opposite assessments, two very different assessments. By the standard of worldly wisdom, by the standard of those who are perishing, the logic of the cross is folly. The cross is stupid. It's pathetic. It's powerless. That's the verdict of worldly wisdom. But just listen to what God thinks 
of worldly wisdom. Look there in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So in the assessment of God himself, not only is the logic of the cross vindicated, but worldly wisdom is shown to be stupid, pathetic, and ultimately powerless. Where is the wise man? Where is the strong man? By the preaching of the cross, the wise men of this world are shown to be fools, and the strong men are shown to be powerless. And what worldly wisdom claimed for itself actually belongs to the cross. It is the preaching of the cross that is the wisdom, the power, and the pleasure of God. The preaching of the cross is the wisdom, the power, and the pleasure of God. It's straight from our passage. Verse 21, verse 24. The preaching of the cross is the wisdom of God in concealing himself from human pride. It is the pleasure of God in revealing himself to those who trust in the crucified king. It is the power of God for salvation. That's Paul's message to the Corinthians. And that's God's message to us here this morning. I hope you'll agree it's one that we really need to hear. Because we so easily buy into the logic of worldly wisdom. So easily. It's our food and drink. It's our... It's our default position. It's our software, our operating system, if you like. We are so attracted to the lie that we can make God in our own image to do our bidding and to be measured by our performance standards, our KPIs. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And guess what? So do we. We are tempted all the time to worship those same two idols, the same two gods of our making, power and worldly wisdom. Malcolm Muggeridge said, if God is dead, somebody's going to have to take his place. It'll be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. What he's saying is that if you reject the one true God, you end up replacing him with the God of your own making. And for Paul, that's either going to be a God of power at your service or a God of wisdom from your mind. This is the logic of worldly wisdom, and it plays out in our culture, plays out in our churches, plays out in our own hearts. So let's just take, we'll take a slightly closer look. Start with power. What does power worship look like in the culture? Well, we see straight away when we ask, who are our cultural heroes and villains? Who are they? Patrice Motsepe, Mark Shuttleworth, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Claudi Motsoneng. (laughs) Couldn't resist, couldn't resist. What does salvation look like in a power culture, it's a healthy self-esteem, assertiveness training. Just listen to the titles of these self-help books. All of them bestsellers. The Power of Now, 
the power of positive thinking, 48 laws of power, the power of self-discipline, and my personal favorite, because it doesn't beat around the bush, simply the power. <laughs> That's a, it's actually the sequel to The Secret, if you're interested. Our culture worships power. There's a whole industry around how you can get it for yourself. What about in the church? Well, just like in Corinth in South Africa, the church mirrors the culture to a greater or lesser extent. We want a God whose power we can tap into like a generator. And so we surround ourselves with leaders who claim they have the ability to tap us in. We call them prophets or men of God. They are our spiritual big men. I mean, there's so many examples. There's one on every street corner, but I'm sure you can guess who I'm going to go for. Shepherd Bushiri. He calls himself prophet, major one, head of the enlightened Christian gathering. His speciality is power healing. Now, I watched one of these healings on YouTube. I don't recommend you do that. It would have been funny. And it's in one level it was funny, but at the, same, at the same time, it's so, so very sad. He starts, now Black would do a much better job of this, so you're going to have to bear with me. He starts by announcing it's time for healing. It's time for healing. It's time for healing. Be healed. Be healed. I rebuke the cancer in your blood. I rebuke the asthma in your lungs. I rebuke the pain in your stomach. If you are blind, let your eyes be opened right now. Be healed. Receive. Receive. If you're watching on TV, be healed. Healing is happening right now. Goes on for a long time. And then he goes over to an old lady sitting in a, in a wheelchair. And she starts telling him her story. And he very quickly gets impatient because time is money. He says, okay, okay. Raise up your hands. Begin to receive. Walk. And then this old gogo, she literally launches out of the wheelchair and she goes sprinting across the stage. And the guy with the microphone is chasing after her to try and keep up. <laughs> Eventually, when he hunts her down, he does a quick private interview and then he reports back to Major One. And he says, Daddy, she's been in this problem for three years. And this is the most telling part of the whole clip. At this point, she bursts into praise and worship. Thank you, man of God. Thank you, Major One. My prophet, my prophet, thank you. No mention of Jesus. No mention of the Father. No mention of the Spirit. Thank you, man of God, Major One, my prophet, my prophet, thank you. Now, whatever this guy is doing, in the eyes of worldly wisdom, he is a massive success. Close to 4 million likes on his Facebook posts. His net worth is roughly 150 million US dollars. The beginning of the year, he treated himself to a private jet, his third private jet. The latest news is that he wants to run for president of Malawi. I mean, heaven help Malawi. <laughs> Jews demand a sign. And guess what? So do we. That's power in the church. What about power in your heart and in my heart? Because I demand a sign. God must solve this problem for me. God shows himself good and powerful through miracles or interventions that suit my agenda. 
He must confirm his existence through a show of force in my favor. But don't you see that that's worldly wisdom? You know what that's saying? That's saying the cross is not enough. What you did at the cross is not enough. You must do X, Y, Z to prove yourself. Because the cross is not quite enough. What does the logic of the cross tell us? Well, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' healing ministry is just starting to get some traction. He's just starting to build some momentum. There's a bit of fervor amongst the people. What does he do? He withdraws to go and pray. I mean, it's not a great business model. And when Peter eventually catches up with him and says to Jesus, where have you been? They're queuing up. At this point, Bushiri would say, listen, grab, grab the camera, bring them, let's get this stuff on YouTube. What does Jesus say? Straight from the text. Let us go to the next village so that I can preach the gospel because that is why I have come. Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet who ever lived, the prophet, the man of God, what does he say? Let us go to the next village so that I can preach the gospel because that is why I have come. In the very next chapter, they bring him a man who is paralyzed from the shoulders down. They bring him for healing. What does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. And what are these stories teaching us? Well, they're teaching us what Paul says plainly in Romans 1.16. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You are not saved by a healing miracle or a money miracle or a relationship miracle. Those are temporary solutions to a permanent problem. In the end, sin and death are going to snatch all of those things away. Your money, your relationships, your health, it's all going to go. It comes to us all. Now, here's the funny thing. If you want health and wealth and prosperity... It's not that you're aiming too high. It's that you're aiming too low. It's not that God wants to give you less, that he's kind of tight-fisted. No, he's trying to give you so much more, infinitely more. He's trying to give you himself. And those things get in the way. If you want to be rich and healthy and happy just for this life, you're like a man who's been wandering around in the desert and comes in and insists on his shot glass of water, and only this one. When Jesus is offering to take you to the fountain of life. That's power. Let's talk about the other idol. Wisdom. What does worldly wisdom worship look like in our culture? I don't know if you've noticed it, but just, just consider how many TV shows and movies and books are devoted to glorifying human intellect uh, by glorifying some genius or another, some savant. I mean, this is just off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure if you spent two minutes on it, you could double this list. The Pretender, Dexter, Suits, House, Sherlock, Elementary, Rain Man, Goodwill Hunting, Beautiful Mind, A Theory of Everything, and it goes on and on and on. What are these movies and shows and books? What are they? They are sacrifices to the God of human ingenuity. Salvation comes through innovation and progress driven along by human genius. 
That's the cultural air we breathe. What about in the church? What does all this look like in the church? Well, this is what Bishop T.D. Jakes says in one of his books. God blesses his people, all of us. Faith is the substance of whatever it is that we hope for. Did you know that? The important thing is that we teach that faith is connected to good works and responsibility. Otherwise, when we teach that faith is all that's necessary, we teach a belief in magic. Isn't it time for you to direct your hope toward building your dreams instead of waiting on your dreams to build themselves? As we look at various areas of your life, if you're willing to reposition yourself, then truly, the sky's the limit. Did you hear that? Faith is the substance of whatever it is you're hoping for. Faith is about your dreams, your ambitions. You read the chapter headings, you, kind of, you, get a, you very quickly get a concrete sense of what he thinks you should be hoping for. Listen to some of the chapter headings. Lions, tigers, and bears defeating the financial foes that limit you. Facing the giant, capitalizing on credit. Now here's the logic. You've got to know what you want. Then you've got to hope for it. Then you've got to add hard work, and that formula equals success. Know what you want, hope for it, add hard work, success. That's the gospel according to T.D. Jakes. Now, I don't know what you call that. Whatever it is, it is not the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the logic of the cross. To be honest, it sounds a lot like the logic of worldly wisdom to me. I feel like I can go and get that sort of advice, that formula for success, just about anywhere in the world. I don't need to go to the bishop to get it. And it sells. It sells. The good bishop has sold well over one million books. More than 20,000 people attend his church every single week. Why? Because we love to hear people tell us what our itching ears want to hear. That's worldly wisdom in the church. But we need to be honest. There is worldly wisdom in our own hearts. Every single one of us. And one of the ways it manifests is in this subtle but stubborn idea that I decide who God is. I decide. It normally surfaces in the form of a biblical teaching that you don't like, that you're uncomfortable with. It can't mean what it says in the text, because then God doesn't give humanity the freedom I think humanity should have. It can't mean what it says in the text, because then God isn't just. It can't mean what it says in the text because then God isn't loving. Now let me ask you, in that conversation, who's deciding on the standards for freedom and justice and love? What are you measuring God against? Because he's God. I mean, isn't he the one who defines what justice is, what love is, what freedom is? The truth is we're measuring him against our own standards. And normally, those standards are lifted straight from the culture. That's the air we breathe, remember? Sure, God has revealed himself through his word, but if that Bible contradicts my carefully considered opinions on freedom and love and justice, well, quite honestly, I'm not sure if he can count on my support. You see the implication? You are the judge of God. 
It's a complete role reversal. God must conform to your standards or he could be out of a job. Now, against such madness, Paul gives us the logic of the cross. The king is given an animal's birth. He lives a servant's life. And he dies a criminal's death. And only then does he rise to glory. That's what we put our trust in. Faith is not my dreams plus my hard work equals my success as I've I've defined it. Faith is in Christ, in his purposes, in his plans, in his work, in his victory, which he gives us as a free gift. The Christian journey is not my best life now with the least possible respect I can muster for Joel Austin. It's a lot more like this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Why, Paul? Why would you live like that? Well, he tells us, we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay, our mortal, frail, finite, fickle human existence. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The logic of the gospel says that the path to eternal glory is through the cross. It's death to human pride. It was for Jesus, it will be for all of us. Now, you may think you have a better way, but it's not God's way. And so it's nothing more than the wisdom of this world. The logic of the cross is the antidote to pride in our hearts. The kind of pride that allows us to define God as we see fit and then to follow leaders who are going to take us where we want to go. Leaders who are going to lead through displays of worldly wisdom and power. Leaders for whom salvation is worldly success. But God says, I can save the whole universe with a piece of wood and a couple of nails. I can save the universe with something that looks Distinctly like defeat and death and humiliation. I can turn all of that around into victory and life and exaltation. God saves the world through weakness. Think about that. That's power. God saves the world through weakness. Do you see how this gospel obliterates human pride? And that's precisely why the world thinks it's so stupid. And it's why we have to keep preaching it, because we have, we have to preach Christ crucified, because you can pack a stadium with 30,000 people. You cannot save a single soul with self-help preaching. Not one. Not one. You can sell a million books. 
But you can't rescue a single reader from sin and death. Not one. Only the gospel can do that. Only the paradox of Christ crucified. That's what we have to preach. That's what you must hold us to account for. That's where the power is. And the wisdom is. But it's not the human kind. So if you are looking for evidence of success, don't look for the usual kind. Don't look for spectacular. Don't listen for sophistication. Look for service. Listen for the cross. Now this is very important for us to hear at CCM because if we're honest, this is a fairly impressive church. And we are tempted to worldly wisdom all the time. Strategies, buildings, chapters, those are very necessary and important things. I'm invested in those things. Martin's invested in those things. The council is invested in those things, but they mean nothing. And we recognize they mean nothing. And passages like this keep reminding us that they mean nothing unless we preach the cross of Christ. They are worse than nothing if we boast in them, if we think that's where the power is. Don't look for spectacular. Don't listen for sophistication. Now, this auditorium has high ceilings. It's a pretty imposing stage. We seat over a thousand in here, some of the best lighting and sound that money can buy. But by the logic of the cross, the most important feature in this building is on a little plaque above a tea station outside those doors. Let's pray. Father, please will you guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Keep us from putting our trust in the idols of worldly wisdom and power. Help us instead, Lord, to trust Christ and him crucified and to apply that gospel logic to every aspect of our lives. Father, we thank you so much for 25 years of faithful cross-preaching. And Father, let it always be a badge of honor at this church that we preach Christ crucified and that we live by the word of the cross. Amen.